Well, we have the book of Zechariah. Let's keep going. Let's, uh, why don't you get there too with, uh, with me to Zechariah chapter 12. Maybe as you're plugging away in this study with us, maybe some of you are starting to see why there's a lot of church pastors that don't really like to go through or they avoid the book of Zechariah. Um, and I, I, I'd like you to almost tuck that away, especially you prophecy buffs, like picture yourself trying to teach through this book if you're an amillennialist or a preterist, you know, like it'd be impossible. There's no way you can explain any of this. It would just be like, wow, that's a weird book, whatever, and then pass, pass through. But when you have what I believe is the biblical prophetic eschatology, and that is, you know, that we're, uh, there's, there's a very clear, as, as I read the Bible, very clear event list that's gonna happen. Um, I believe the rapture of the church is the next thing on the list of things the Lord's gonna do, um, which ushers in the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is when God intervenes and he starts by pouring out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And for seven years, that period, the tribulation is gonna rage. Um, but during that time, you know, it's gonna do two things in the tribulation, uh, shake up the sinful nations, but wake up God's people, the Jews. Um, and that's the major uh, reason why the tribulation exists, is to wake up the Jews. And that's really part of the theme that we're gonna see tonight is the waking up of the Jews, seeing that, wow, we crucified the Messiah. The Jews are gonna see that and Zechariah the prophet is foretelling those days when that happens uh, during the tribulation period and even into the beginning of the millennial reign. Um, and then after the tribulation period, then Christ returns. At the end of the tribulation period, Christ returns, battle of Armageddon, of course, and then uh, the millennial kingdom starts from there on out. Um, Zachariah is gonna touch on all these things in our chapters uh, tonight. Um, so again, it's very specific and, and, and very detailed. Um, you know, so while a lot of Bible churches are you know, so-called avoiding parts of the Bible, you and I should be looking at these things because man, it'll help you understand what God's plan is. You know, and, and um, I get sometimes people say, Brett, why don't you teach all the different views? And I always like to say, because I don't believe them. Uh, it's hard to teach something that you think is kind of nonsense. Uh, and so I don't spend any time with that. And there's plenty of resources and you can study for yourself about what your end times view is. I find it interesting. There's some people at Athey, I think they just wanna be different for the sake of being different. Uh, well, Brett, I'm not sure if I'm a pre-tribber. And then I talk to them, well, wh why do you think of, you know, pre-millennial pre or, pre, or post-millennial or pre-wrath or, uh, you know, ah-mill, saw-mill, what's your, what's your view? And um, oftentimes I, I find it interesting that they don't really know. They don't really, they just haven't really done the work. They just wanna be sort of contrarians. And they also know that it's not a essential doctrine of the Christian faith. In other words, if you have a different view than I do about eschatology, it doesn't mean you're going to hell. By the way, you know what I find interesting is 20 years ago, um, most of people that had different views on end times, we all got along really well. It was all really kind of nice and friendly. Not so much anymore. Like there's YouTube videos out there of guys and there are all these you know, young kind of woke pastors that are very much into this. They are pretty much saying that the churches that teach in a rapture of the church and, and the end times are heresy. Like they're, they're treating it like it's a heretical teaching, even though, you know, we've been teaching this. Uh, and, and before 20 years ago, we all kind of, it was an in-house debate. And it should be that, by the way. It's not an essential doctrine. Well, then why do you talk about it, Brett? Maybe you should join those pastors if it's not an essential doctrine. Just because something's not an essential doctrine doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. Or not that it's essential in the sense of, you know, like for example, your view on say speaking in tongues. 
Is that an essential doctrine of the Christian faith? Is it important? Of course, speaking in tongues is an important topic of the Bible to talk about. Now, what your view on it is gonna be maybe different than some, but that's why that's not an essential doctrine. It doesn't doesn't divide you out from the Christian faith. Um, Is Jesus being God in the flesh? Is that an essential doctrine or not? That is an essential doctrine. Yeah, Jesus, uh, whether you believe he he is God incarnate, uh, that's, that's what separates the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses out from. Now, if you're watching online, you're a Mormon saying, no, they believe that. No, they don't. <laughs> I get letters because you've been brainwashed. Uh, go back to the doctrines and covenants of the Mormon faith. And the newfangled Mormons are trying to low profile that whole thing and trying to very much look like they're just like Christians, but they're not. And, and just do your homework on that. I beg you. Uh, especially if you're one who likes watching the through the Bible study here at Athe Creek, be, be uh, like the Bereans who search the scriptures and see if what's being said is true or false. Don't just take my word for it, but definitely don't take your Mormon bishop's word for it or whoever is teaching you those things. So anyway, yeah, essential doctrines. By the way, we did a whole teaching series on the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. If you go to Athe Creek's website and our teaching page, and, and I think it's in the series section, we did a whole series on... What are the essential doctrines versus some of the non-essentials, which are kind of an important thing. But anyway, I I digress. Um, I don't teach all the other views because there's not enough time to do that. Plus I really believe in a pre-trib sort of rapture view. And to me, it's very clear. And and by the way, it's one of the only, if you see a through the Bible teaching church, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, I will almost 99.999% of the time guarantee they're a pre-trib rapture view church because they're the only view they can, with, without turning red in the face, teach through the Bible. Does that make sense to you guys? That's an important thing to know. Uh, and I think it's a huge, huge thing. Um, you say, well, Brett, what if you're just being controversial and you know, the Lord's gonna do what he's gonna do, so why does it matter? Well, I believe prophecy is in the Bible because it's important. But let's talk about a few of the whys. One of the reasons why it's important is it changes the way you live. If you don't believe the rapture of the church is gonna happen in any time future, or maybe like some of the churches around Portland here that don't even believe in the rapture at all, that's gonna change your worldview. For me, it'd be really depressing. Especially if you're like one of these kingdom now or dominion theology people, like, you know, we're gonna usher in the kingdom of God and things are gonna get better and we're gonna make things better in the world and then, then Christ will return. We will usher that in. How are we doing with that if that's really our job description right now? Um, I'd say we're miserably failing right now. Um, So that would be really depressing, but good news. uh, The Bible actually says things are gonna get worse and then the rapture of the church. Um, And so that all makes sense. I believe we should be encouraged even as 1 John chapter three says, who has this hope, the hope of the Lord's return, purifies himself. There's a purifying effect. And that's why the Lord wants us to live as as the, you know, Matthew 24, the faithful servant, who's watching and waiting and ready for his, you know, his return. Um, let me remind you what the wicked servant is said of. This is the wicked servant in Matthew 24, 48 through 51. It says, but, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, the Lord delays his coming and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him and in an hour when he is not aware of. Um, by the way, I think sadly, that's where a lot of Christians are today, frankly, where they have no sense of awareness uh, the, the days we're living, which is so profound because we're living in crazy days. Very obvious to me. 
Um, but anyway, they're not aware of that. Verse 51, and um, the Lord will then cut him asunder and put, uh, appoint him his portion with the hypocrites where there shall be weeping and wailing or wishing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Brother, are you suggesting that people that are not watching for the return of the Lord are going to hell? I'm not gonna make that argument here. Uh, we can talk about this, but here's the thing. Do you even wanna be categorized in that category? Do you want anything to do with these people that are mentioned here? Well, it's the wicked servant, which is interesting. They are a servant of the master in this you know, paradigm that Jesus is arguing for. Um, and they're, they're called wicked because they say, oh, the Lord delays his coming. I don't want any part of that, no matter who you are. That's not a good posture to take, if you ask me. Well, be that as it may, Zechariah chapter 12 is dealing with all these end times uh, truths and evidence uh, and uh, a lot of things that we're gonna talk about. I mentioned earlier, you know, in that day is mentioned just here in chapter 12, seven times, seven times in that day. What day is that, anybody? The day of the Lord. Um, Jerusalem is mentioned nine times, uh, 37 times in the book of Zechariah is Jerusalem mentioned. Um, by the way, when I mentioned the other day that uh, Jerusalem is mentioned in the Bible over 800 times, some of you were like, uh, went home and started counting. It's actually, you're like, no, but it's like 167. Nope, it's actually, if you include all of the idioms for Jerusalem, which there's a lot of them in the Bible, but it's actually, if you do the county, including the city of the great king, uh, the, the uh, Zion, uh, you know, there's like a bunch of different names for Jerusalem. It's 811 exact count of, uh, now remember this, this is an important number. The reason the Muslims claim, no, Jerusalem is a Muslim city. How many times is Jerusalem mentioned in the Quran? Zero times, that's important to know. Um, and it didn't become, <clears throat> um, um, you know, Islam until very recent, as I like to remind people that it was Yasser Arafat. We were all alive when Yasser Arafat was around, like most of you guys here in this room were alive when Yasser Arafat was in power for the Palestinians. It was his great uncle who declared Jerusalem the most holy, or third most holy site in all of Islam. Um, the, by the way, the Islamization of the Temple Mount um, is something, you can look it up on Wikipedia. And it, I was shocked to see actually a accurate description of what's happening there on Wikipedia with that one. Cause you know, there, there's always those that uh, disagree, but, um, but basically there, there's a, you know, a rewriting of history or they call it a historical process by which the Muslim authorities are trying to erase the Temple Mount as a Jewish place at all. Um, you know, they try to uh, say that the Jews were never there. There was never a temple there. And it's, it's kind of a funny argument, but that's what they're trying to convince. And there's a lot of college professors that will teach that in your universities. And a lot of your children who went off to university heard that from a university professor that the Jews were never in Jerusalem, even though that's the most insane statement somebody could ever make. And that it just shows how much they don't know. But the, the site of Jerusalem is kind of amazing. And we spent the last uh, couple Sundays, a few weeks back, um, talking about what's the big deal about Jerusalem. Um, but the Temple Mount is, is the most amazing site of all. And one thing I haven't gone over is kind of, you know, sort of after the Roman destroyed Jerusalem, you know, for, for a while, the Romans actually made the, 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 um, the Temple Mount a pagan temple of Rome. Uh, they did that with the Temple Mount for a while. After that, the Byzantinians, the Byzantine uh, people built a public building on the Temple Mount. It was just a place for public meetings. Um, after the Byzantines, then um, it, it became possibly a church. And now there's an interesting thing about this. Um, have you ever noticed what shape is the Dome of the Rock shrine? 
What shape is it? Not what shape is it in, no, like what shape is it? It's like a hexagon, right? So it's, uh, you know, it's got these, you know, the, the angled circle. That's not a Muslim thing. Does anybody know what, if you're an archeological uh, expert, once you see that shape of a building, what do you think that building is? Anybody? Huh? One more time. You're, you're, you're on the right track. He said Greek Orthodox on the right track. Even before that, huh? Coptics? Gnostic? No, okay, so here's the thing. Uh, I don't know about that. Uh, Get it? Gnostic? Anyway, um, (laughs) Gnosticism. But um, yeah, archaeological digs in the Middle East, um, especially around Israel and stuff, when you see that shape of a building, the first thing to think is church. Did you guys know that? That's an interesting thing. Do you guys remember Peter's house in Capernaum? If you've ever been to Capernaum, how many of you have been to Capernaum? Yeah, so you guys saw, they built a, the Catholics, man, they always build stuff over stuff. They built this spaceship thing over Peter's house in Capernaum and it looks horrible. But anyway, the spaceship is, if you kind of move the spaceship away, you can see kind of under the spaceship where Peter's house probably was. And the reason they believe it was Peter's house archeologically is because somebody built that, you know, hexagonal shaped room um, that, uh, that was probably one of the earliest of churches. Uh, and even when Peter was alive, it was, it was sort of a, a symbol of where churches met and they made the first church buildings were this shape. So anyway, all that to say, uh, if you look at the Dome of the Rock Shrine, and now I don't call it the Dome of the Rock Mosque because nobody really does over there. That's just tourist Americans who call it that. The shrine is the Golden Dome. The mosque is Al-Aqsa Mosque, okay? That's over just on another area of the Temple Mount. The gray, if you look at the gray dome on the Temple Mount, that's actually Al-Aqsa Mosque. But the Dome of the Rock Shrine is shaped in a church shape. Um, And they believe the building before that was probably that shape, which means it might've been a church at one point, the Christian church on the Temple Mount. There's, I don't know why I'm telling you all this stuff. This probably doesn't really relate to tonight's study as much, but I just think that stuff is really interesting. And they built over and around it, the Dome of the Rock Shrine in that same shape, but that's why they had to put the blue label around the the ridge of that that says that God has no begotten, nor does he beget. They had to make sure that they denied Christianity. Um, Does anybody know after it was possibly a church, after the Byzantinian made a public building there for centuries, then then it became maybe a church, very likely. But after that, does anybody know what it became after that? Anybody? A garbage dump. The Temple Mount for a long, long time just sat there as a garbage dump. Um, that's kind of amazing. And you kind of think about it now, the, the, the world is warring over this, this single little piece of ground, you know, that one time was just, a, it was left as a garbage dump. Um, and then later the Dome of the Rock and the Alaska Mosque, uh, mosque was uh, built there. Um, but you know, the, the Temple Mount is a big deal in the Bible. Uh, the, and, and why is it such a big deal for the Muslims? Well, I'll tell you why it's a big deal. And, and I'll put it in really simple terms. Remember when you were a little kid, and nobody wanted to play with this toy over here. But then when you went over there and started playing with that toy, all the preschoolers came and, hey, I wanna play with that. And you're like, nope, I'm playing with it. That's what happened. Same thing. The Jews uh, got back into Jerusalem uh, and they, the Zionist movement started you know, getting more and more filled. Nobody could care less about the Temple Mount at that time. But the Jews were like, no, this is our, this is our holiest site. 
And the Jews started caring about it and actually taking care of it um, in, in the Zionist movement. Um, but then, uh, it, it, like I said, Yasser Arafat's great uncle eventually said, no, that's ours, you know, mine. And that, that's our third most holy site. And, and you know, he claimed that that's where Muhammad ascended. That's why it's the third most holy site. Isn't it interesting? Jesus ascended from Jerusalem. And now they're, the Muslims, you know, 600 years later, you know, Muhammad came 600 years later and they're trying to claim that, no, 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 Muhammad ascended from Jerusalem, uh, trying to cancel out Jesus from ascending. It's, it's really kind of embarrassing how painful the whole thing really is academically, but the world just buys, buys it all hook, line and sinker. sinker. But, um, but all this, the reason we should care about this, you know, if you read the book of Zechariah, you might, as a Gentile, as we Gentiles, we might say, whatever. Who cares what's gonna happen in Jerusalem or the Jews and Israel and stuff? But remember, we're told, we're told several places in the Bible that we should care. Um, in fact, um, probably the classic scripture you should remember, and I, I refer to this often, that tells us we're not to be two things, arrogant or ignorant. Those are the two things we're not supposed to be. Romans 11, 25 through 27, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, uh, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written, there shall come out of Zion, the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Zechariah is gonna talk about this time period when this happens, this parallel, this is a parallel scripture with Zechariah 12 and 13 and 14. Um, so that's kind of where we are. Let, let's do a quick review of the previous chapters. In section one, um, we had, uh, you know, chapters one through six, we had the visions, the eight visions of Zechariah. And then uh, section two, we saw the questions by the people, chapters seven and eight. But that third section is the first and second coming of Jesus, um, including, um, you know, the millennial kingdom, the tribulation, all those things are included in chapters nine through 14. Um, these last chapters tell us, so much about the future of Israel. The list is actually long. Uh, somebody went through and made a list of all the things Zechariah tells us that some of the other books, they don't tell us. Like we learn so much, um, you know, uh, that the world confederacy will be against Jerusalem. Uh, the, you know, this one world government's gonna actually hate Jerusalem. That comes from Zechariah. Uh, the victory of the Jews that are gonna be empowered by the Lord, even though they're gonna hang by a thread, the Jews will ultimately be victorious. That comes from the book of Zechariah. Um, you know, the conviction of Israel nationally by the spirit of God, God's gonna convict their hearts. We're gonna see that tonight. Um, they're, they're gonna see the presentation of Jesus as their rejected Messiah. Um, we're gonna see the National Day of Atonement reinstituted uh, you know, in Zechariah and, and on and on. Like I could go on, even, even stuff about the crucifixion of Christ. We talked about some of that on Sunday that he'd be pierced in his side. There was prophecies Zechariah gives about uh, the first appearance of Christ, but also his second coming. Uh, all kinds of things. And we can just keep going. There's a huge list of things that Zechariah gives us. So don't neglect Zechariah in your reading when you're studying Bible prophecy because there's so much we, we learn here. So let's take a look, Zechariah 12, uh, starting in verse one. And there it says, the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layereth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within, within him. 
Um, okay, so this is, uh, we've, we've looked at this briefly, but I uh, haven't really talked in depth about this, but um, for you science brains, Albert Einstein types, um, the language here of, uh, of Zachariah is really fascinating um, because the, the word stretching is, um, is an interesting word. It's, it means to extend, but it's also the word that they would sort of un, like unfloral a scroll. Like if you unroll a scroll, uh, that's kind of the language we're using. Um, when, when, um, when Albert Einstein was doing his theory of relativity, dimensionality, and the idea of the universe and stuff, um, you know, Einstein formally believed that there was a static universe, uh, you know, and, 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 um, and then with working with other calculations, he came to the conclusion that the universe has to be continually expanding. And, um, and the language of the Hebrew Bible is shockingly accurate when it comes to the description of the universe, when it says, the Lord which stretcheth forth. It doesn't mean that he did it past tense. Um, the idea is he is stretching forth actively right now. The universe is still being unfloraled like a scroll. And that's exactly what the, the and this is math stuff I don't even understand, but with, um, with some of the tensor calculus and stuff that the, you know, Einstein and his buddies use, um, they've actually concluded that it's like the Lord is almost, uh, you know, the, the, I should say the universe is sort of unscrolling is kind of a great type of language used for uh, this description. So when, when the, the Bible touches on science, it's always amazing to me how the Bible's always right. Even though it's thousands of years old, long before, we did a whole teaching on science and the Bible and how it's amazing how the Bible doesn't get stuff wrong. There should be some crazy scripture that just goes, oh, well, that's really wrong. You know, like, like when, when the world was trying to argue during the days of Columbus that the, you know, the world was flat, they should have read the book of Job and Isaiah that talked about, the, the, you know, one says that the earth was a sphere and the, and the other said that the earth was hung upon nothing. And uh, they should have read their Bibles. The Bible gets it right. Well, Brett, I happen to know where the Bible's wrong. Where's that? Well, the Bible says the sun rises in the east and we know that the sun doesn't rise in the east. Well, call your meteorological guy down on the news station because he still calls it the sunrise and the sunset. It's an idiom of human speech. It, it, we're not making a scientific statement when we say the sunrise. From the perspective of humanity, it looks like the sun is rising in the sky. We know it's technically not. So we gotta not be kind of weirdos when it comes to trying to find little chinks in the armor of the Bible as it relates to science. But science has proven the Bible correct over and over again. And um, if there's anything that does go against the Bible and it's so-called science, um, I would be very skeptical of that if, if I were you. You'd be wise to do that. Um, so God is sort of in this statement setting the stage to say, um, you know, you should probably listen to me on this one because I am stretching forth the universe. It's like, that's a pretty good credential. Should we listen to the one who stretcheth forth the, the universe uh, and his hand spans the universe? Like, we should probably listen. That's, that's the point of this statement right here is to say, time to listen to this, this voice because this is the voice of the Lord who stretcheth forth the foundation of the earth. But notice that last phrase in verse one, and formeth the spirit of man within him. When is the spirit of man formed within him? That's an interesting thing to talk about really. Um, by the way, um, the, one, one of the other beefs I have with Mormonism along with many, and the deeper you get into Mormonism and studying what the Mormons believe, you really should watch out because it, it gets weird. But have you ever wondered like, why, why do Mormons have so many um, children? Well, um, the reason Mormons have so many kids um, 
And one thing they might tell you is because we love family, we're really into family. And I think that that does seem to be true. You gotta commend Mormons for being into family. And by the way, I like big families. It's, and, and the Bible does say be fruitful and multiply. So that's all good. Big families are awesome. Um, but the real reason, if you get into Mormon theology or doctrine, I should say, um, they believe that there are millions of spirit children that are residing with God um, that need to come to earth. Um, and, and they need to come through birth by a Mormon woman. Unless a Mormon woman gives birth to that child, the, those spirit babies are still uh, you know, disembodied or whatever. So the, the Mormon woman has a baby and then the, the spirit that's hanging out with God comes down and resides in that, that caring, loving Mormon family. Um, Mormons believe that before people are born, they're in a spirit form with God and one gains a body by coming to earth, acquiring the necessary experience, tools you earn to get eternal life and salvation and enter the celestial level. It goes on and on. But, but the point that I make is, um, that's just wrong. Uh, for you that kind of uh, read your Bible, you know, that sounds wrong and it sounds a little weird. Uh, but where did they come up with that? Joseph Smith, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of weird things in there, but this verse actually shows you that that's not true. Uh, the Lord says, um, he's, you know, creating, you know, forming the heavens and layer in the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. We know that John the Baptist had a spirit even in the womb of Elizabeth uh, when, you know, um, when, when the news was, uh, you know, I love that scripture in Luke chapter one, verse 41. This should make anybody who had an abortion think, oh, that was the wrong thing to do because it's not just a blob of fetal tissue, it's a, a spirit. Uh, the Bible talks about how we're made up of body, soul, and spirit. And the spirit is formed within, within man, uh, that is within humanity. It came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. John the Baptist kind of hears the news of Jesus is coming and the baby leaps in the mother's womb. That's pretty cool. Um, so. Basically, um, that's a kind of an interesting statement here. The spirit of man is formed within him. Uh, I think that's a, kind of a cool statement. But another reason out of hundreds in the Bible why abortion is something that we should not even uh, accept at all because it's, it's, it's the Lord forming a person in the mother's womb. Be that as it may, verse two, behold, <clears throat> I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all people, all the people round about, when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day, will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. And all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. So in that day, the day of the Lord that we've talked about um, is gonna come. And the day of the Lord begins, um, you know, um, with this, this sort of scene, the stage being set where the world's gonna come against Jerusalem. And like we spent the last couple of weeks talking about that, so I'm not gonna dive back into that. But if you missed uh, those couple Sundays, what's the big deal about Jerusalem, part one and part two, we covered this verse pretty thoroughly. In that day, verse four, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment. Now, I'm not sure what an astonished horse looks like, uh, but you know, I don't know, like will horses go, oh, what's, what's, well, keep that in mind just for a second. Um, I'll strike every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. And I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah 
and I will smite every horse of the people with blindness. Uh, pardon me, uh, um, every horse of the, of the people with blindness. So there's some key things here that you should know about in verse four. Um, then there's, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing because you and I say, well, who, who rides horses anymore in the world in battle or military? Um, and the truth is there are a few armies that still have a mounted cavalry, but I'm not sure that's what the Bible's talking about. Um, you have to go to the Hebrew words here that are just sort of, you know, translated to be horse and rider because that would have been the, 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 the machinery of war back when the Bible was written, but also even when it was translated by the King James and what have you. But the Hebrew word is kind of interesting. We already covered the Hebrew word for horse and rider. Um, we did that recently, but just a quick reminder, the word for horse is this word sus, which can be any number of things. It can be a horse, it can be a chariot horse. Um, but it's also a leaping creature or a swallow or a crane or um, something that flies. Like that's the Hebrew word, this, this um, you know, sort of a, a, a vehicle of speed that can fly maybe or run really fast is kind of the idea of the Hebrew word. It doesn't just limit itself to just the word horse, interestingly enough. The word rider um, is this word rakav, which is just means something that's mounted and ridden. Uh, you could say Rakav uh, Harley Davidson. Um, you're riding it. Uh, you're mounting and riding is the idea. Uh, it could be any number of weapons or modern day weapons. So we, we need to be careful when we read these old uh, words that are translated horse and rider. It, it may be horse and rider, but it also could be any number of, if you're Zachariah and you're wanting to say something about, you know, 2022 military weapons or you're John the Apostle in the book of Revelation, how do you describe an Apache helicopter? Or um, or an F you know F eighteen or a you know how do you how do you talk about this stuff? Well, you, you'd probably call it a horse and a rider or something like that. So that that's kind of interesting. Now um, another thing is these words madness and astonishment, um, and the words are, are fascinating because basically you can picture people that are military in nature, soldiers, uh, armies. Um, but shig'aun uh, is the Hebrew word for um, craziness, furiously madness, um, wild, helpless panic is the idea that's gonna happen when it says um, his rider will be stricken with this, this, this idea of madness. The horse will be, uh, or the vehicle of whatever they're riding will, uh, uh, something unexpected will happen, a stupefaction. Uh, numbness or senselessness. Like you'll be almost stopped in your tracks. You know, when somebody freezes up, that's kind of the idea of this word, um, uh, timahon uh, in the Hebrew word. So shigaon and timahon, madness and astonishment are the words that Zechariah uses here. So maybe along with blindness um, used here, the, the vehicles will be acting up or not work correctly. They maybe they all stop. There's all kinds of speculation we could do with this. Um, you know, those, those electromagnetic pulse weapons that detonate you know, a few miles above the atmosphere that disables anything with circuitry in it. That's stuff that exists. And it would probably dis disable so many types of military vehicles. People probably wish they had a horse right about then. Uh, when when the, you know, the machinery goes down, you, you're gonna wish that you had a horse. Well, what about a motorcycle? Well, unless, even the modern motorcycles today have you know, circuitry and stuff in them. So um, it could disable a lot of things. Um, but, but that's one of the things that think could happen 
huge electromagnetic pulse weapons, disabling military vehicles, but there's gonna be this astonishment, madness, and blindness. Um, uh, and uh, by the way, uh, the, the same words here, those three, the big three that we're talking about, blindness, madness, and astonishment here, the same words are used talking about those who disregard God's word, interestingly enough. In uh, Deuteronomy 28, 28, it says, the Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. The people who just say, yeah, whatever, to God's word. That's gonna happen. So it's interesting to me that those two things are, are co uh, correlated. So basically the armies that come against Israel and specifically Jerusalem are gonna go uh, mad, blind, and astonished. Um, and, and by the way, this, this sounds to me a little bit like the supernatural intervention of God. Um, if you think of the Bible stories and some of the battles of the Old Testament that were supernatural in nature, um, have you thought about that for a second? Like, like think about you know, these battles like Gideon where the enemies, you know, Gideon has 300 guys, they smash some pitchers and some flames and say, the sword of the Lord out of Gideon. And the enemies look up and they see these 300 lights uh, up on the cliffs and they flip out and they turn, they go crazy. They turn their swords one on another and they hack each other up and kill each other in the end. Like that's a crazy story. But you get a sense that in the, in the last days in the, when, when this, the nations turn against Israel, Gideon level battle miraculous intervention of God's gonna happen, where people are gonna go crazy. Um, and um, even like when Rabshakeh was trash talking around Jerusalem when the Assyrians came, remember that story? And remember the angel that comes, this big angel comes and slays 185,000 men in one night. That's when God just says, yeah, I think I'm gonna crush that army. And it's over. 185,000 guys dead in one night. Um, so I think that's what this is talking about, how the Lord is gonna intervene. That's what we're seeing here in verse four. In that day, the Lord will smite these horses. Um, and by the way, even some of the modern wars of Israel, 1973, you know, Golan Heights, um, you know, Syria writes about the Syrians. This is, this is amazing. Um, the Syrian, remember the tank battles I've told you about uh, in the Golan Heights where the tanks are rolling up and trying to come up over Golan Heights and down into Galilee? Uh, you know, in, in the Yom Kippur War, Six Day War, um, also uh, in 1973, the biggest, some of the biggest tank battles in history. One of the battles, um, there's, a, there's stories where the tank drivers literally uh, reported that they saw, um, they saw soldiers that weren't dressed like any other soldiers, but they looked like angels and they couldn't break through the, the army of angels or these, like it's, it's, a, it's on record. These, these Syrian tank people said, we couldn't break through. Um, you know, remember when I told you about the one little tank that kept shooting? Um, there was probably some other things going on there other than just the one tank being brilliant. Um, God was intervening. Um, by the way, there's another tank battle. I probably shouldn't get into all this stuff, but where there were so many tanks in the field, um, Israeli and Syrian, that they were literally bumping into each other. And they were trying to turn, whoever could turn their turrets, but their turrets, uh, you know, and their, their, their barrels, you know, the cannons were bumping into each other. And it was at nighttime and they were just bumping into each other. So one of the Israeli tank commanders did something that was kind of shocking. There's, there's, there's military history people that study these things. The, the military guy, the Israeli tank commander said, Israeli tanks, you know, turn on all your lights and then just shoot in the darkness, like shoot at the darkness. And that's what they did. All the Israelis suddenly flipped on all their lights on their tanks 
And then they just started picking them off like fish in a barrel uh, and were very underpowered compared to the Syrian tanks, but had some amazing victories there. Tank battles, uh, if you wanna study tank battles, check out some of the biggest tank battles that ever happened in the world were on the Golan Heights with the Syrians. Um, those were supernaturally um, altered battles that the Jews have enjoyed even in modern days. So we shouldn't be shocked when the Bible says the Lord's gonna cause the armies that are going against Israel to be astonished and blind and go mad, that's gonna be the way the Lord's gonna fight. Um, well, anyway, back to Zechariah 12, um, verse five. And it says, and the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of uh, hosts, their God. Um, basically, the Lord's gonna empower Israel in, in warfare but he's also gonna devour their enemies and God's gonna do that. Verse six, in that day, will I make the governors of Judah like an hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in the sheath. And they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. The Lord shall also save the tents of Judah first that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against uh, Jerusalem. So basically the battles will unify the Jews um, and no one area of Israel is gonna be able to take credit over the other, that's kind of the idea. But actually the Lord is gonna get credit. Um, but listen to this next verse. This is, this is pretty amazing, especially if you know the stories of David in the Old Testament, verse, um, verse eight. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and he that is feeble among them in that day shall be as David and the house of David shall be as God as uh, the angel of the Lord before them. Wow, wow this is amazing. Basically it's saying the weakest of the soldiers will be like David, which is basically the Old Testament Rambo. Like, remember David, uh, you know, the women's saying in the streets, Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. You know, David was a guy who went and slew, you know, giants and, and killed groups of men. And I can't even go into all the details of some of the stuff he did. It might offend some of you guys, especially the girls, maybe. Uh, it's, it's really a, a crazy thing. David was like, he was the military uh, genius, but he was also a warrior's warrior. And, and here in these days, it'll, it says that, even the most feeble will be like David from the Old Testament. Um, that's gonna be something to see. Um, by the way, one of the best militaries in the world continues to be the, uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. Um, and even, even watching how they take our technology and improve on it, it's kind of an amazing thing. I told you about those wars of Israel. Um, one of the wars of Israel, um, some Syrian jets went against um, Jewish uh, fighters. And the, 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 the fighters that, that the Jews had were from America. We sold them some of our older, uh, you know, outdated jets. Um, and the Syrians had some more modern day, you know, kind of, they were from Russia kind of jets. And the Israelis had some air battles. And they, again, they still study these battles to this day. There was one battle where more than 70 Syrian jets were shot down and the Jews only lost one of their jets in these dogfights. Um, you know, in this era of everybody talking about Top Gun, somebody should do a movie about this. 
Because you wanna know what happened. How did, how did the Israelis in that war shoot down more than 70 more improved aircraft? Um, and, and why did they lose one? They, the one that they lost was mechanical failure. It wasn't actually shot down. But how did they improve? Well, uh, the Americans, now we know, because it's been many years ago, but we know what they did. They, they added an improvement on the, um, the jet of that day that the Americans sold to them. What was their big technological improvement? They actually stuck a rear view mirror in a certain place on the jet so you could actually see where the jets were. <laughs> like there's, a, there's an amazing story about the Jews sticking a mirror somewhere that helped to, it's like, uh, you know, but I don't think it was the mirror. I think it was the Lord just saying, I'm gonna protect my people. And we see that in modern battles, you know, technology advancements in military power. The, the Israelis are at the, at the top of that. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we're still trying to learn from the Israelis how to fight certain types of battles. Um, but more operatively than having all these great Israeli fighters and stuff, the biggest thing is what we read there in, at the end of verse eight, it says, um, the house of David shall be as God as the angel of the Lord before them. Uh, the angel of the Lord, who's the angel of the Lord? It's, it's Jesus, he's gonna go before them and fight. Now, by the way, if you recall, um, the Bible says stuff about this all the time, but when, when it talks about the angel of the Lord going before them in battle, you might jot these scriptures down in your notes because these are all scriptures uh, that kind of deal with that. Uh, Exodus 23, 20, 32, 34, 33, 2. But maybe the most important mention is also Joshua um, chapter five. Remember the story of Joshua getting ready to go into Jericho? He's, he's kind of freaking out, wondering what's going on. Well, check out, remember this conversation in Joshua chapter five, verse 13. It says, and it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, there stood a man over against him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. I think that's one of the funniest scriptures in the Bible. Here's this big, huge, you know, sword and are you for us or against us? He's like, nope. Which one? Yes or no? Uh, I mean, are you, are you for us or against us? And the answer is no. Sometimes I think we have to remember that about the Lord, by the way, because uh, we, we, we say, Lord, are you on America's side or are you on Ukraine's side or Russia's side or Israel's side? I wonder if the Lord would say, no, just like this. Oh, but, but we think, Lord, you're on Joshua's side, but he, he doesn't even say that. Like, that's an interesting statement that he's like, nope, I'm not for any one of your sides, but as captain of the host of the Lord, I am now come. And Joshua fell on his face to earth. Notice this, this lets us know who this is, by the way. And it says, and he did worship. Question for Bible students. Whenever you see somebody fall down and worship, someone who shouldn't be worshiped, um, that's someone sent from God, whether it's Paul or Barnabas or Peter, or, you know, when somebody falls down and worships someone, what, what does that person say right out of the gate? Get up, don't worship me, I'm not. But here, not only does this soldier with a sword drawn allow it, but check what he says. Um, you know, he falls down to his face and did worship and said to him, what saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, loose thy shoe from off thy foot for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. So like, I think we kind of know who this is. When was the last time somebody had to loose the shoe off their foot? Moses at the 
burning bush is where he met God who called himself the I am that I am. You see, that's how we know this is a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Uh, this, is, this is God who's going before Joshua. He's the Lord, uh, the angel of the Lord who's going to go and fight in battle with Joshua. That's the Lord that we, we know and love and serve. People forget this part of God that he is the Lord of, of battle, mighty in battle. Well, Zechariah chapter 12, verse eight reminds us of that. Well, verse nine, it says, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. But I've got that verse marked in my Bible because this is what we, we've got to keep our eye on. Um, if you've been around here for the last month or so, I've been warning Biden's heading to Jerusalem. Should we be nervous? And the answer is yes. Um, the Jews are already fired up um, about this, you know, him coming. Um, let's talk about this for a second. Um, you know, uh, in Isaiah, <laughs> the United Nothing, uh, um, I mean, United Nations, they, uh, they, they have this scripture emblazoned on stone in front of the United Nations. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Um, you know, this, this is great and everything that they're putting scripture up, but they left a, the first part of this out. Uh, the United Nations left this, this is the first part they left out. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. That's God. And I guarantee he's gonna be rebuking those nations that are in the United Nations. Um, and the, the United Nations is not the ones who are gonna be making people beat their swords into plowshares. That's gonna be the Lord who does that. The one I just showed you from Joshua 5, same one. So instead of putting this on their little uh, building, they should have put this Zechariah 12, nine, and it shall come to pass in that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. That's what United Nations have put on their stone outside of their stupid building. <laughs> Bro, you sound a little bit upset about this. Well, just read the verse. The Lord says this. Um, you know, we should be praying for the peace of Jerusalem, especially with Biden on his way. Um, the, the news agency, Israel 365, they did an article just a couple days ago on June 12th. Um, uh, Biden reverses Trump recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Now, um, now let me just say this, this is the Jews panicking because they know what Biden's gonna do and trying to do. They might be overstating this, I sure hope they are. Um, because that's not exactly what Biden's doing, but let me explain to you what Biden is doing. Um, he, uh, a report from the Washington Free Beacon cited sources in the State Department confirming, confirming that the Biden administration will move forward with establishing a new Office of Palestinian Affairs in Jerusalem that will act independently of the United States Ambassador to Israel office. So basically, Biden is, is getting ready to set up a shop for the Palestinians as if that's the capital for the Palestinians. Can you have two enemy nations having the same capital? Like if you think about the math on that, it's just probably not too brilliant, but Biden seems to think that's gonna work. Um, opening a diplomatic office in the Palestinians in Jerusalem after US recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital, making clear that Jerusalem is part of uh, Israel, um, it has the same disastrous consequence as opening a formal cons uh, consulate. Milstein told the Free Beacon, it is a decision, blatant effort to unravel the implementation of the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995. So the Israelis are kind of freaking out about what Biden is suggesting. And it is, I am gonna say this, while I wouldn't say that Biden's saying we're gonna reverse what Trump did yet, I hope he doesn't do this, 
but the Jews are saying, this is where this leads. What he's trying to do is gonna lead to that. And that's very likely. Um, and so, uh, by the way, in this article, the Israelis, they quote, um, in fact, turn, let's jump ahead. Go to chapter 14, verse 12. This article of the Jews, this is like, this is like if MSNBC quoted a, a Bible verse. <laughs> they usually misquote, but anyway, this article quoted Zechariah 14, 12. And they said this, and this shall be a plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet and their eyes shall consume away with their holes and their tongues shall consume away with their mouth. If you read the article, they're saying that's gonna happen to the Americans. That's what they're saying. If, if Biden goes through with this, can't argue too much with them. The nation that curses Israel is gonna be cursed and the nation that blesses Israel is gonna be blessed. It's interesting to read you know, the news in Jerusalem quoting the Hebrew Bible. They actually said from our you know, Israeli Bible, they said, um, we're quoting, and they quoted Zechariah 14, 12. Be that as it may, that's what we're seeing happening in the world. Um, so back to chapter 12, I think the United Nations need to put 12, nine on their building instead, because that's the truth of the matter. Verse 10, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, um, the spirit of grace and of supplication, uh, supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness of his firstborn. So basically, if you're following sort of the, the, the way things are going here, we've got um, the Lord intervening as all the nations go to attack Israel, hate Jerusalem. Jesus is gonna intervene. And in that day, the day of the Lord, I will destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. But that's when we shift gears in verse 10. They're gonna suddenly receive the spirit and they're gonna see their eyes are gonna be opened. And verse, verse 10 is basically um, showing that they're gonna have mourning and bitterness. And by the way, this, the finishing out of this chapter is that of mourning because they'll realize, what have we done? When they realize that Jesus really was the Messiah, the very Jesus that they despised and rejected, they're gonna see that. And that's what we talked about on Sunday. They shall look upon whom they have pierced. We talked about that on Sunday, verse 10. Um, they'll look on him and realize their mistake. Um, and just like the Jews, by the way, I wonder if you and I, when we see him, if we're gonna be sobered up as well, just, to, I mean, because, you know, we can't just say the Jews are guilty of the crucifixion of Jesus. I wonder if you and I, when we see him, we're gonna see him as a lamb that had been slain and we'll think, wow, what have we done? Because our sin put Jesus on the cross, not just the Jews. I, I, I wonder if that's gonna be one of the more shocking things when we see Christ, even in his resurrected conquering king form, we're still gonna see the wounds and the, and the scars in his hands. Um, but anyway, all that to say, uh, don't be shocked how much you'll be shocked <laughs> when you see the Messiah. Verse 11, in that day, um, more mourning here. In that day, there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the Valley of Megiddo. In the Valley of Megiddo, there's gonna be mourning. And that's where the battle's gonna be. You know that from other passages. Um, by the way, um, the Valley of Megiddo or Megiddon, um, it's the same thing as uh, Megiddo. Um, and if you say the Valley or, uh, or the Hill of uh, Megiddo, 
um, is actually the word Har-mageddon or Armageddon. So um, these, these terms are stuff that you need to know if you're going around Israel. Now, um, when we've been to this place, last time, one of the recent times I brought a bunch of people to the, uh, the Valley of Armageddon, it was extremely uh, dusty. It was, that was, that's not fog or rain, that's dust. And we were up on a very windy day up on the top. This is the top Mount Carmel and we're t- talking about uh, the end times and the battle of Armageddon. That's where Elijah slew the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. Right here is a little chapel on Mount Carmel where we like to sing because it sounds really cool in this little chapel. Um, and, but, uh, and it wasn't windy in there. So, um, but when we got back out, it was like this dust storm and it was pretty radical. But, um, but the, a, few, a, a few weeks later, I took uh, Micah and myself and a couple other guys went and filmed on a sunny day that wasn't blowing sand everywhere. Um, and this is the Valley of Armageddon. If you look closely in this valley, you think, oh, so peaceful, so pretty. But if you look closely, there's a V right there. See the V? That's two airstrips where you know, fighter jets are taking off constantly right there uh, with missiles and rockets going up to Iran and other places. Um, and you can see them. Debbie and I were sitting on this hillside once just reading the Bible and journaling. And all of a sudden these F-15s just dropped right over our heads and uh, it was pretty radical. But this is the valley that Napoleon has uh, spoken of to say that, you know, this is truly the place where the last battle is gonna be fought. I'm teaching at Megiddo, the city of Megiddo. It's, it's up on the hill of Megiddo. Um, and there's, it's an amazing place. 23 civilizations archeologically uh, on this tell that are piled up. But as you look down from the, 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 um, this little town of Megiddo, you can, you can see down into the valley of Armageddon. Um, the, the word Armageddon occurs only in Revelation 16, 16, um, basically de- designating it's the place where the, the great day of the Lord, the battle of that day is gonna happen. Um, so that's, that's a place that's, now, now one of the things that's interesting, these are all, this is, this is from, this is a, maybe you know, 30 miles away, you go to Nazareth, the little town where Jesus grew up, and this building is Nazareth. They built, they built this building over, remember I told you the Catholics build things over? This was a, the village of Nazareth. They built a huge chapel over. But, um, and I don't take groups here very often. It's, it's, it's kind of gaudy and weird um, is what they did to Nazareth. But I do sometimes drive our groups up into Nazareth where we look over the, the, the hill of Nazareth that looks down on the Valley of Armageddon. This is Nazareth. We're in Nazareth right here, looking from the other side. Mount Carmel's on the other side of that valley uh, where we were in the previous pictures. But this, the reason I think this is interesting, can you imagine what a 12-year-old Jesus with a dad who's a carpenter in Nazareth, did he look out over this valley and, and say, this is where I'm gonna return and conquer all the nations of the world? Like, like as, did Jesus know that at 12? Like, there's some interesting questions that I have uh, that I wonder what Jesus must have thought about this actual view as he was growing up, seeing. He, every morning he'd get up, he would look at the Valley of Armageddon uh, as a kid growing up in Nazareth. Anyway, um, man, you know, th- this valley is rich with history of battles, both um, outside of the Bible, but also inside of the Bible. Jabin and his 900 chariots. Gideon uh, was uh, a few kilometers away, his story. Samson fought uh, Deborah and Barak and Sisera. That whole thing happened in the valley. Uh, Saul was killed in this valley. Uh, Ahaziah and Jehu. Also, one of the big ones, Josiah was slain. Uh, remember King Josiah, the king that reigned at eight years old? Uh, he made a mistake tactically and went in and fought in battle. And he was killed with an arrow in this valley of Armageddon. Um, 
Um, by the way, uh, why do we read this name here in verse 11, Hadad Ramon? Um, there's a kind of interesting, it's a Syrian false god that that's named after, but um, it, they also suggest that this was a place of great mourning. Um, um, that word Hadad Ramon is linked to the word mourning because of Josiah being killed there. That's why it's called the little town of Hadad Ramon, okay? So that's, if you're wondering why that word's there, it's, it has to do with Josiah's death in the Valley of Armageddon. Now, you say, okay, Brett, got it. Um, but what's the Bible say about this? Well, and why bring up Megiddo here in this place? Because this is right after this battle of uh, Armageddon and the Jews are gonna be standing there in the Valley of Armageddon after having the Lord intervene and saving their souls, saving their lives. Um, the book of Revelation chapter 16 tells us what's gonna happen. Let me just read really quick as we're running out of time. Uh, so I'm gonna read this quick. Revelation 16, 12 says, um, and the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates and dried up the way of the kings of the east prepared. And I saw unclean spirits uh, like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Um, what are these little frog-like demons gonna do? They're gonna be coming out um, of the dragon and they're gonna tell all the nations of the world to go to Megiddo. That's what they're gonna say, these little frog demons. They're frog demons. And they say, go to Megiddo, go to Megiddo, go to Megiddo. Um, now, why would nations do that? I think that's funny, by the way. Um, why would those frogs do this? It's, this? it's, we're already, this is gonna happen during the tribulation period. But we're already seeing sort of the precursor to that where nations are starting to hate Jews and hate Jerusalem more and more. This is all fulfilling, you know, the preparation for all this to happen. So, you know, it's not even a hard stretch to picture nations going against Jerusalem in battle today. Um, the Russians, man, they're stirring up trouble with Israel every single day right now. They're, there's real problems with Syria, Iran, and Russia. And uh, I, I'm just gonna have to save that for our next prophecy update maybe. Uh, but uh, it's, it's heating up over there right now. So Satan has his own little false trinity, the dragon, Satan, the beast, Antichrist, with the false prophet. And the, the battle will be here. Uh, this, this is what it's being talked about there in verse 11 um, of our text. Well, be that as it may, um, verse 12. Um, and the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Nathan apart and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Levi apart and their wives apart, and the family of Shimei apart and the wives apart, all the families that remain every family apart and their wives apart. Brett, um, what in the world is that all about? Um, this is just a way Zechariah is sort of poetically saying all the people in Israel, uh, the representatives of Israel, everyone in Israel. Uh, when he mentions Nathan, he's referring to the prophets. When he mentions Levi, he's referring to the priests. When he mentions David, he's worrying to, uh, referring to the kings. So you got the prophets, priests, the king, and then you got the rest, everyone else. Um, but basically they'll go apart into seclusion and shame, mourning for what they had done to the Messiah, Jesus. Um, and this will be a true show of mourning, not a false mourning. 
is the idea here. And that brings us here to chapter 13. Let's, let's just do this quick, this won't take long. Uh, in that day, there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. We talked about that this last Sunday, verse two. And in, it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land and they shall no more uh, be remembered. And I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it'll come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that beget him will say unto him, thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that beget him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. What's this talking about? Um, uh, well, one thing we know is these prophets so-called get the point. Uh, that's, uh, sorry, I had to say that. Um, even their mom and dad are gonna stick them through like a shish kebab. What's going on? Um, now, um, verses two through five, when Jesus comes, they'll see the false prophets of Israel that had been there for centuries, that they were false. Um, and even their own mothers and fathers will skewer them with a spear. Um, they'll say, are you a prophet? And he'll say, no, I'm a farmer. I've been a farmer since I was a little kid. Uh, false prophets are gonna be thumped on uh, during this time, or, or at least they recognize that they had caused all kinds of trouble. That's the idea. And man, when you read Jeremiah and Isaiah and some of these prophecies with these false prophets, if you've been with us, you kind of realize they sort of deserve that, don't they? They misled the people for thousands of years. Many of the prophets were false. Now there's false prophets today as well. And I think we have to be, be um, equally as sort of uh, upset about false prophets. Uh, Jesus talked about that in the last days. Well, verse six. And one shall say unto him, what are these wounds in thy hands? And then he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Um, I love that he calls them their friends. You know, I would have said, these are the wounds I re received in the house of a bunch of losers. You, loser. Uh, but Jesus doesn't do that. He says, I've received these wounds. In the we can be sometimes harder on people than Jesus wants to be. Um, and I think there's people that are harder on the Jews than Jesus would want them to be. Um, you know, they nailed them to the cross, those Jews. Um, but what did Jesus say when they were doing that? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Like uh, Luke 23, when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, they were crucified, they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and one on the left hand, then said, Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. You know, Jesus even called Judas friend. I think this is funny. Now, was Jesus manipulating? Was he being sort of sarcastic? I don't think so. It says, now, um, he that betrayed him gave him them a sign saying, whosoever I shall kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith, he came to Jesus and said, hail master, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, wherefore art thou come? And then they laid hands on Jesus and took him. He called him friend. John 15, 15, henceforth I call you not servants for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I've called you friends for all the things that I have heard of you, my father has made known unto you. Um, you can try to earn God's favor, but that's a total waste of time. God, he already loves you as a friend. Um, you already have the Lord's favor and he wants to give you rest and peace and life more abundantly. Well, all that to say, I, the Jews are saying, wow, we're the ones who wounded you. We're the ones who did that. They're seeing that in verse six. Verse seven uh, goes on. And basically this is a summary of the history of the Jews 
in verses seven through nine. Stuff that we've gone over in great detail. You might recognize some of this stuff. Um, verse seven, uh, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. That's the diaspora, the king being killed. And I will turn my hand upon the little ones and it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. Um, so verse nine, I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. And I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. So here you see the people you know, being gathered together for a rough time uh, with the Antichrist making war with them. And two thirds of them will be destroyed, it says here. That's the sad thing about the Jews. Um, by the way, in World War II, one third of the Jews on the earth were killed. Um, there something like 57.74 um, uh, Jews in Europe were killed. Um, that's, that's more than half of the Jews in Europe were all killed during the Holocaust. Um, but in this, in this time, it's gonna be even worse what the Antichrist is gonna seek to do. It'll be sort of the second Holocaust is what this is saying. One third is left when Jesus returns. Um, why would God allow the Jews to go through such suffering in such times? Um, and, and that really brings the question, why does God allow suffering at all? Um, um, but the idea is um, that suffering is part of sin. And, and um, that's what people, we, we all deal with that. The fallen condition of humanity and God sees our suffering. But part of the whole day of the Lord thing is to, um, is to uh, relieve us of our suffering. That's what the day of the Lord is all about. And if you're like, well, why is he picking on the Jews? Well, it's so sad today. Did you know that most of the Jews today are, I've always said, you know, in Tel Aviv, that 70% of the people are atheists. But this Haaretz article, an Israeli uh, news agency, um, said Israel among the least religious countries in the world. Um, this article says only 30% of Israelis are religious of any, have any kind of religion. Less than one third of Israelis say they're religious, which is uh, well below the norm in really the rest of the world, but definitely in Western Europe. Uh, and the Jews attribute their success in warfare politically, agriculturally, and et cetera, to their own wisdom. They, they sort of take credit today. You know, I, I sit here and talk about the miraculous battles of Israel and their farmlands. They just made another deal, by the way, with Europe on the fruit and vegetables that Israel produces. And it's just, you know, dissing Russia who provides vegetable and food. I mean, it's, it's causing some tension between Israel and Russia right now. That happened just like yesterday. Um, but this attitude of the Jews, this is what has turned a lot of people off, by the way. Anti-Semitism, I think, is somewhat rooted in the Jews not trusting in God, but saying, yeah, we're pretty amazing. And, and it doesn't fly well. Um, did anybody ever hear of Martin Luther's work on the Jews? I've talked about his, you know, we should all be thankful that Martin Luther did the Reformation and all that. But let me read to you a paragraph from Martin Luther's work. Um, um, he said, set fire to their synagogues or schools. Martin Luther recommended on one of the Jews, uh, on, on the Jews and their lies. That's the name of his book, by the way. You don't read this one very often. Uh, but he wrote this book. 
Jewish houses should be razed and destroyed. The Jewish prayer books, the Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught should be taken from them. In addition, their rabbis should be forbidden to teach on pain of loss of life and limb. That was his view uh, ultimately on Jews. Um, very anti-Semitic was Martin Luther, maybe one of the worst. That's why Hitler loved this book um, on the Jews and their lies. But the reason I bring that up is because the Jews have been very rebellious and stubborn against God. And so we say, well, why, is the, why are the Jews gonna be destroyed so much? I mean, the Lord's gonna have them hanging by a thread and then rescue them. But you have to remember, this is kind of of their own doing that they've rejected their Lord and they've tried to do it on their own, their own strengths. Not a great way to go. So that's what we're seeing. Well, we've got one more chapter. We're gonna save that for next week. And uh, we'll, well, then we'll be done with Zechariah. Then only one small little book uh, to get through and then we're done with the Old Testament. So good stuff. Lord, we are thankful for your word and we're thankful uh, to know that you are in control. Um, Lord, um, even as uh, we see the Jews largely in unbelief today, we know that you have a plan and a purpose to save Israel. Um, but we know there's a lot of bad that's gonna happen. Lord, I pray that before all that happens, that your church would be a bright spot of light in this world, that we would point people to your mercy and your grace, your kindness, your plan of, of saving and redeeming, Lord. And I pray that you just cause us to be joyful, even in the midst of craziness, Lord, as we see stuff going on in the world today, help us to have that peace that passes understanding. Um, Lord, we don't put our trust in Biden or Trump. We don't put our trust in our Congress the House of Representatives or the Senate or our election system. We don't put our trust in all these things. We trust you alone, Lord. You are the one who is worthy of our trust. And we put our trust in you knowing that you are gonna cause us ultimately to be with you in heaven. So give us that hope. Lord, bless these, your people who've gone through this section of scripture tonight, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.